You're listening to episode 19 of the Journey to Launch podcast, the pillars of FI and how you can reach financial independence. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 guys. I am so excited to be back for another episode of the Journey to Launch podcast. Today's episode is going to be really, really special, and that's because we are talking about my favorite topic, financial independence. What does that mean? How do we reach it? We're going to get into all of that. So today we have Jonathan and Brad from the Choose FI podcast. And if you don't know about them, they have an amazing podcast all about reaching financial independence. And in this episode, they are going to lay down the foundations, the pillars of what it takes to reach FI. So I really believe this is going to be one of the most important episodes of this podcast to date. Not that everything else wasn't amazing, but this really breaks down for a lot of you guys that want to reach financial independence, who want to see how you can get from point A, where you are now, to point B. This kind of gives you that roadmap. And if you want the episode show notes, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 19. Brad and Jonathan were so nice to actually create a Pillars of FI cheats sheet for you to get and download. So if you go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 19, you'll be able to get that. Also, just wanted to touch base with you guys. So last week I shared some pretty big news. Well, it was two big announcements, but one of them was that I was going to be on a local news network here in New York. So that segment aired. It was on News 12 Brooklyn and News 12 Bronx. And if you didn't listen to the last episode, you should definitely go listen to that. But I talked about becoming the personal finance expert on a new segment for News 12. And I'm so excited because right now it's a reoccurring feature. And I think this is just amazing opportunity for me to get Journey to Launch and the idea of financial freedom out there to everyone. And I must admit that this is not easy for me. So I know it's kind of crazy because I'm talking about this on a podcast, my savings journey and everything that I'm doing. And then I am sharing the numbers with you guys. But honestly, this was not easy for me in the beginning to be as open about because I'm a pretty private person. And I think I've said that before on this podcast. And I also will say that I actually feel more comfortable kind of talking to you guys, to my internet friends, my friends in my head, my podcast listeners in my head, than people in real life about my finances. So believe it or not, a lot of people who know me don't really know that I have Journey to Launch or that I'm doing Journey to Launch. It's something that a couple, you know, close family and friends know, but it's not something I go around talking about to people who know me. So it's funny that now I'm on this local news network talking about this because as you can imagine, it's going to get out there to more people that I know. And I've decided to just own it because as Brene Brown says in one of my favorite books, Daring Greatly, you just need to step into the arena and make a difference 
by sharing your story and not being afraid to do that. So with that said, if you do want to see the segment that aired, you can go to the show notes. I linked it in the show notes, journeytolaunch.com slash episode 19. I will have the link to the segment. Also, it's every Wednesday. So if you're in New York and you're local, you can expect to see it all the time on Wednesdays. By the way, this is another great reason you should sign up for my email list because I usually include links like that all the time. So just go to journeytolaunch.com. You could sign up for a million of my opt-ins or freebies to just join me on my weekly email list. I'm not going to make you wait any longer. Let's jump right into this episode with Jonathan and Brad from Choose FI. So I am so excited to have Jonathan Mendonza and Brad Barrett on the podcast from Choose FI. How are you guys doing? I am doing fantastic. Great job with my name. That is not an easy one. You crushed it. Yeah, I took my time. I like really wrote it down how you told me to say it. Phonetic approach to it. I like that. And thank you for having us here. We're really excited to be here. You guys are very popular in the personal finance podcast world. I'm new to it. But tell everyone who is not familiar with your podcast, Choose FI, who you are and what you're all about. So Brad and I both are in the financial independence community, which is a community that focuses on this idea of essentially clawing back your time with the option to retire early if you would like to do that. But really, it's a focus on intentional living and really just mastering your finances from an early age. We have a podcast that caters to that community. We've been podcasting since the beginning of January 2017, and we're really just trying to serve this community and provide a platform to provide them information that can kind of help carry them along this journey from the beginning where you discover this idea of FI and you latch onto it and you decide you want to change some things in your life to really line up with this path that you want to go down. And once you get on this path, our goal was to be essentially travel guides and someone that could check in with you on a twice a week basis and just give you encouragement and additional information along the way. And we're able to bring in a lot of the thought leaders and influencers in our space. We try to take very complex FI hacks, financial independence hacks and tax optimization strategies and income growth strategies and break them down into bite-sized pieces and then deliver them to our audience so that they can digest that. And then hopefully the most important thing, I'm sure that you find this as well, is that idea of taking action, that idea that if you can break it down into what's that first thing, what's that one thing I can do from every episode to take action, that then becomes content that can change someone's life. So that's essentially the show that we've tried to create. Anything to add to that, Brad? Yeah, I think certainly just to reiterate a couple of those points is it's taking action. I think that's one of the biggest things. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and some of them at the end, I'm just like, why did I just spend 40 minutes of my life on this? And it, it can be frustrating, but we set out to every single episode have actionable tips that people can take away and put into place that very week. So that's where we're trying to set ourselves a little bit apart. And also, like Jonathan mentioned with the community, we don't want this to be like bloggers and podcasters dictating from on high on what's right and what's not. We are just trying to present information so that regular people, you know, Jonathan and I are just regular guys, middle-class people. We both live in Richmond, Virginia. We're not doing anything crazy. We're just living life a little more optimized. And we want other families, single people, whoever is listening to our, our show to be able to take that action and just 
set this into place and get on a path to five because it really isn't that difficult. It just takes a couple of little optimizations in life that can make a humongous difference between living paycheck to paycheck to saving 25, 50, 70% of your income, which sounds crazy when you first hear about it, but it's really not that difficult once you apply some intentionality to it. Right. And that's why I think this will probably be maybe one of my favorite episodes that I'm recording. Don't tell any of my other guests that. Because becoming financially independent, becoming financially free, that's my goal. So I'm still on the journey myself. My goal is to become financially independent in six years or less. And once I started sharing that with my audience and my goals and how I was doing that, I got a lot of great feedback and people who really didn't even know that that was possible, that they could retire early, that they didn't have to work until they were 59 and a half or 65 that if they took and optimized their finances in a way that worked for them, they can live a life that they want. So I think this episode is important because I want to dive into what it means to be financially independent. How can someone start their journey? How can someone who's on that journey already continue on that path and be successful? And I think you guys are the perfect pair to come on and talk about that. Well, thank you. That's a huge compliment. And I love that that information is resonating with you. And also your audience is resonating from your take on that. And that when you're sharing that with them, they're finding that valuable as well. I think probably we should tackle that one piece at a time. And usually the place that I like to start is what I heard you say is that why fi why should people choose that financial independence? And the buzzkill in all this is that really what we're just trying to tell people to do is just save your money. Now that's a pretty boring sentence all by itself. And I think a lot of people can just walk away from it. So you got to add some why to that. You got to add some justification. Why should somebody save their money? And there are people that are naturally frugal. There are people that are quote unquote cheap. There are people that have kind of scurried money and set money aside for years and years, but there wasn't really a framework or a way to discuss that that made sense to the rest of us, the natural spenders. And that's kind of the category that I find myself in. Why should I save my money? I could die tomorrow. Why shouldn't I spend every penny that I have now and focus on the moment and make sure that I'm enjoying every single day? It's not enough to just say, well, you should save it because that's a good thing to do. You are fighting this mass marketing machine that is telling you to part with every single dollar that you've earned. And if you don't have the money, go ahead and put it on the credit card because today could be your last. Yep. I hear that a lot from people. Okay. So you have to detangle yourself from that. And let's just follow the natural course of what the quote unquote American dream or the consumer dream kind of tells you to do. Go to school get your degree, come out. In a perfect world, you'll be making at least $50,000 a year. Hopefully between you and your spouse, you're making over $100,000 a year. And that means that you can afford the two new cars. You can afford the larger house. Make sure that you consider upgrading the house and doing the kitchen remodel and getting the bathroom model. Now you need to make sure that you're working hard in order to do this, get all your raises. That way you can afford those upgrades. But since you're working very hard, since you're getting these raises, that's going to allow you to actually go ahead and purchase some of those extra toys like the boat. Maybe it'll allow you to upgrade the house again and get to the nicer neighborhood across the block that you couldn't quite afford the first time. Don't settle for used cars because you deserve those new cars. You're working too hard. Now, what's happening in the background here is that those cars are unused 90% of the time, right? Because you're forced to be at work to pay for those cars. That house with that kitchen remodel and that bathroom remodel, you're not there because you have to be at work all the time, including maybe even every other weekend in order to afford that remodel. And so what you find when you really start to look at that picture objectively is that you have gotten yourself into a situation where you're buying stuff to make up for your general unhappiness. And what the financial independence community does is says, 
instead of focusing on buying stuff to make up for my unhappiness, what if I just focused on happiness? What if I made a list of things that actually made me happy? And then what you find when you're honest about that and you do that is that in most cases, those items don't involve stuff, or at least stuff is not a necessary prerequisite for happiness. And then if you start focusing on what would actually make me happy, in many cases, it's reclaiming your time. And so you come to the conclusion that time is actually your most valuable resource. And because you bought into this false worldview of consumerism, you're trapped on the hamster wheel. And so Phi becomes a journey to break the hamster wheel and reclaim your time. That's powerful. And do you feel like you've broken that hamster wheel yourself? Because I know you come from a background where you graduated with $168,000 in loans. Yes, I did. So I, I kind of followed the prototypical path, which is maybe the best that our society tells you that you can accomplish, you know, to be somewhat in the middle class. So I did the four years of college. I did the four years of grad school. I got a degree in the medical field and became a pharmacist. But along with that, I was able to achieve a six-figure income and a fairly decent one. But along with that came six figures of student loan debt. So I found that even once I determined that Phi was something that I wanted to pursue, four years of undergrad, four years of pharmacy school, and then I paid down that debt in about four to five years by focusing on getting my savings rate over 50%, closer to 60 or 70% throughout that period of time. And then from there, you're broke. And broke isn't always a bad thing, right? I mean, broke is way better than being negative six figures in student loan debt. But even from there, that's essentially when your financial freedom clock really begins and then from there, which that can actually be a very encouraging thing to hit broke, especially if you've been deep in debt. Uh, from there, we have tactics to really dial in on how long it'll take you to reach financial independence. And what we find, especially if you can get that savings rate up near 50% or higher, hitting five in 10 to 15 years is extraordinarily doable. And honestly, it can even be shorter than that. Right. So maybe we should step back a little bit and define what is FI? What is financially independent? What does it mean when you reach that point? The most basic definition, and this is really like a back of the envelope calculation, we call it the 4% rule, or now Jonathan and I like to call it the 4% rule of thumb. All right. So first it starts with your expenses. That's really the easiest way to start is to figure out what your yearly expenses are. So if you are living this five lifestyle, you're trying to cut your expenses theoretically as much as you can, but this is not about deprivation. As Jonathan was saying, this is about trying to earn the most valuable thing in your life, which is your time. So if you look at it as, hey, I'm not going to Starbucks or I'm not going to this and that just to be frugal, that's really not the way to approach it. I approach it as I am saving up for the ultimate luxury, which is my time and potentially decades of my life. So I think that's kind of an important sidebar. But once you've established what your expenses are in a year, let's say just for argument's sake, it's $40,000 a year, not counting taxes, not counting any of the money you've been saving previously, just your actual expenses. All right. So the way that the 4% rule works is you take those expenses and you multiply that by 25 times. All right. So 40,000 times 25 is a million dollars. Now you have a million dollars. And now 4% of that is 40,000. It's just the same math, just backwards, essentially. And theoretically, you can pull out 4% of that total pot of money every year. And because you're investing that money and it's growing, hopefully at significantly more than 4%, that that money will last forever. It's, as we call it, this perpetual money-making machine. 
So it's kind of a funny way to look at it at your pot of money as something that you can pull X percent out. And we say it's roughly 4%. That's the rule of thumb. And that money will last forever. So as long as if your expenses are 40,000, you have a million dollars saved up and that might've taken you seven years. It might've taken you 20 years. That's fine. That's your path to five. But once you have that money saved up, you are at your financial independence number. Mm -hmm. Because your investments and your passive income or the money you make from your portfolio can sustain your lifestyle where you do not have to work actively again if you choose not to. That is absolutely correct. And I think the power of that is that you're actually able to quickly latch onto a number at which point you've essentially made it. You've hit your goal. This was actually a light bulb moment for me in that by crystallizing this concept, crystallizing this idea of when do I have enough? That's extraordinarily valuable. And I think many people, probably people in your community, many people in the traditional finance or personal finance community, many people when they go to their planner are honestly trying to figure out how the heck do I figure out whether or not I have enough? And this number can be tweaked around the margins. But what I love about it is that it gives you a place to start. And you know what I love about it, too, is you can actually pinpoint your current expenses. And let's say of that $40,000, your annual cable bill is, I don't know, so 200 times 12. Someone who's better at math than me, how much is that? $2,400 a year. Right, $2,400 a year. So if you take that $2,400 a year times the 25, that's $60,000 that you would need to save up in order to sustain your cable habit going forward. And you can decide if you figure out that number, if it's worth it to you that you have to maybe work an extra year or six months or whatever it's going to take you to save up what it's going to cost to get that $60,000. Is it worth it to you to have cable? And maybe it is, but maybe you realize that, wait a second, I don't even watch my cable that much. I don't even watch that much TV and I'm spending that much money on it and I'm going to have to work that much harder to sustain that going forward. So I love that idea of the 25 times rule because you can actually look at your individual expenses and see if it's worth it to you to keep them going. That's a really brilliant point. And you touched on a couple of important things there. So first, I am what I like to call a valuist. So I don't think I'm frugal. I don't think I'm cheap. I don't think any of these things. I like to purchase what I value. And I think you embedded that there about the cable. Someone might value that $200 a month, and that's fine. Again, it's not about deprivation. It's not about being cheap or anything like that. It's about figuring out what's important to you in your life and then making those decisions to go forward. So if you want that $200 cable bill a month, you need $60,000 extra in your ultimate pot of money to sustain that forever if you wanted to reach this financial independence. So that's fine. It's not my place to make a decision on whether that's a good or bad choice. I don't really care, frankly. It's just you need to know what that calculation is. I think that's kind of cool. What we did was say $200 per month, but also more simplistically, every $100 per month expense requires $30,000 in your pot of money at the end of the day to reach financial independence. So that's a really cool back of the envelope math that you can just keep in your mind that it's really not that hard to cut $100 a month in food spending, for instance, right? And that's $30,000 less you'll need at the end of the rainbow here to reach financial independence. It's a really neat calculation to keep in mind. Right. And I think it's important because like you said, you can really explain and look at a lot of your current expenses and see if it's worth it to you to do that, to continue on the whatever path you're on. Absolutely. Now that we are clear on what 
the actual number someone can start to figure out to get to the FI number. What are the ways that someone can reach it? So you had a podcast episode that talked about the pillars of FI. And I thought it was really good because it really kind of just laid out kind of like the black and white on if you want to reach FI, these are the things you should be doing. And I'd like you to go over some of those points. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you framed it the perfect way because first you got to look at how the 4% rule works and then you got to look at how expenses play into that. And then you got to look at value and that kind of ties it all together. But once you realize how that equation is set up, then you have to look at what are the biggest line items on people's budgets? What are the things that you actually do have control over? Instead of just letting life happen to you, you could actually take action on these different things. And if you do that, it makes your path so much easier. So we were just kind of looking through what are the choices that people have made that have this aspect of control in common? You can affect this. And the first pillar that we landed on was just our investing philosophy. And both of us and a large percentage of the FI community has latched onto the idea of low-cost index fund investing. And the idea is none of us are going to be able to, with any certainty, dance in and out of the market. The vast majority of professional investors do not keep up with the market over long periods of time. And so since we do not think that we can beat it consistently and we suspect that we're not going to be the one that finds the guy, quote unquote, then why try? And so we generally, we invest in low cost index funds. And the one thing that we can control there is the fee. So the actionable takeaway for your audience is go check and see what your expense ratios are on the funds that you're in. We typically rely on Vanguard's VTSAX. That's just kind of our preferred choice. It has extraordinarily low fees. And by cutting that fee down from what maybe a large percentage of your audience has, which may be anywhere from a 1% to a 1.5% expense ratio, all the way down to a 0.05% expense ratio or less, we're automatically making that 1% back. And over time, that is an incredible difference in returns. And those funds that have those higher fees really are fighting that headwind to even catch up to that. Right, right. Yeah, and just to piggyback on that, as Jonathan was saying, over the long term, there is almost no chance that you or your brilliant financial advisor that you found around the corner from you is going to outperform the market over 30, 50 years, whatever your investing lifetime is. And therefore, it doesn't make sense to pay them extra for mediocre or subpar or even matching the market results. So it sounds like a little amount and most people don't even really unfortunately know much about the expenses that they're paying. And that's why Jonathan said, go to your 401k and just look and see what the expense ratios are. That's what you're looking for. So theoretically you want to pay as little as possible because even though it sounds like a small difference between 0.05% and even 1%, it matters because it compounds over decades and it amounts to losing in some cases 30 to 40 percent of your overall money in that pot of retirement money at the end of the day so this is not insignificant this is probably the single most important pillar when you really look at it in totality right and you cannot outperform the market so therefore just try to match the market try to find an s p 500 index fund or we prefer the total stock market index fund and just go with that and just keep pumping money into it. All right. So let's talk about the next pillar of five. 
The next thing that we landed on, honestly, this is very simple. Just look at what is the biggest line item in your budget, and it's housing, right? And so many people feel the need to buy the largest home that they can afford. In fact, even the mortgage calculators that are on the internet are based on you can afford up to 25% of your gross income. I mean, something absurd. And so we just contest that. I mean, I could afford a much larger house than I'm in. And I'm not going to dictate to you what that is, but low cost housing is critical. Now we're not prescribing whether or not you need to rent versus buy in this situation, but it is important to keep your cost of housing low and, and take the long view here, which is this may or may not be your final home, but do you want to get the home of your dreams or do you want to get the home that serves what you need it to do now and spend that extra income that you can set aside to buy your freedom? And it's also like what we talked about a little bit earlier about the hamster wheel is a lifestyle inflation. So just because you can afford more doesn't mean you should go into more debt because of it. And just play that out. Think about it. You get the larger house, which means it has more empty rooms, which means you need to fill those empty rooms, right? And all the lifestyle creep that comes with the need to have perfectly designed bedrooms, perfectly designed spare rooms. It goes on and on. Home goods has a smile on its face. Okay. So what is the next pillar of FI? So the third pillar relates to your automobile. So we really tried to touch the biggest line items in the budget at the top of these pillars. So clearly housing and cars are two of the biggest ones. We say that you should try to buy generally used cars. I think that's the ideal. Generally speaking, cars are depreciable assets, especially if you buy a new car. You know, the old joke slash adage about it dropping 20, 30% the second you drive it off the lot. So someone who's being intentional about their spending wouldn't buy a new car because you're losing five to $10,000 in value the second you drive it off the lot. So that just seems really, really silly. And in this day and age when cars are so reliable and can last, I have a Honda and a Toyota and they're both 2003s. So we literally have not had car payments in about 10 years at this point, and our cars are still going strong. We estimate that with the money that we saved on that, even if you just figure it was $300 a month per car, so that's $600 per month, right? We talked about that going into our financial independence pot. That would be $180,000 less that we need in our pot of money at the end of the day. And realistically, if you saved $600 per month forever, basically, you're gonna have hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of dollars extra just by making that one decision, just not caring how cool you look in your brand new car, but just buying a car because it gets you from point A to point B and holding it for as long as you can. That's how I pursue this third pillar of financial independence. Okay, that's such a good point too, because so many of us spend money on vehicles and I mean, you see it all the time, like these luxury vehicles, that people buy and it's like almost half of what they're paying in terms of a rent or mortgage payment. And it's ridiculous. And yeah. it's sitting outside their job parking lot, right? Right. Cause they're stuck there because they have nothing in savings because it's all in the car, which is going down in value or which they're not going to have three years from now. Cause they're going to trade it in for something else. It's a perpetual lifetime of payments. Right. Listeners, if you do have a car payment or you have a leased car, I mean, it's not over. This is all to help you understand what decisions you're making or what you might make in the future, how that affects your journey to FI, if that's what you're on. All right. So what's the next 
killer. I actually want to just jump in there based on what you just said, because that is so, so important, is that this is not like a doom and gloom type of scenario here at all. This is a positive message. This is you can make changes that when you make those changes, you are getting the power back in your life. You're able to make small changes and save money and work towards this path to financial independence. Hopefully you aren't listening to this podcast and saying, oh, I bought a big house. I bought an expensive car. I'm going to shut this off. This just isn't going to work for me. That's not the case at all. You can always make changes. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Tomorrow is a new day. You can make a positive change that will help you on this path. It might not be as easy as if you were a 22-year-old kid just coming out of college and having made no wrong decisions. Well, that's fine, okay? That's not your life now. But you make positive changes starting tomorrow and good things are gonna happen. So please, I just wanna make sure everybody understands this is a message of hope, of power, of taking that power back in your life. And I think that's really important to focus on. Yeah, and I gotta say that the piece of that is be so grateful that, especially if you're latching on to this and thinking, I wanna take that first step, you're hearing this now. You're not hearing this 10 years from now. Your 10-year future self is so grateful that you actually continue to listen. And then the first step is to forgive yourself for not making that choice sooner. I mean, that is absolutely critical. And then you can move forward. Mm, yeah, no one's done everything right. Even myself. I mean, I live in New York City. So obviously living in a high cost of area place is harder. It's more expensive to be here. But I've done some things in my 20s, bought a luxury car and some of the things I would not do now that I've done in the past. And it's all helped me come to this realization. It's all been a part of my journey. And I'm so appreciative. I don't regret those decisions because it really helped me understand the cost of making those decisions and how I could change my ways going forward. Definitely. Good points, guys. Yeah. And look at you. I mean, you saved, according to your website, you saved $85,000 last year and you're on pace to save significantly more than that this year. I mean, that's amazing. And it doesn't matter those mistakes you've made. You've learned from them. That's the cool part. I hope really everybody is leaning into this and really grasping that it's not about the past. It's about making intentional decisions going forward. Good points, guys. All right. So what's the next pillar? It would be the next line item in your budget. And for most people, it's the grocery bill. And honestly, this is where just a little bit of intentionality comes into it. When you add in your family grocery bill, plus what you're spending eating out, plus maybe what you're spending on alcohol, wine, entertainment, all that sorts of stuff, most people are hemorrhaging dollars on their grocery line item budget. And First of all, just knowing what you're actually spending is the number one thing for people. It goes down to this idea of intentional living. And once you know how much you actually spent and you pick your jaw up off the floor, you can very easily make a change and slash that by 20% without changing anything, really, but without really having any noticeable impact on your quality of life. Mm, yeah. And this really is such an important thing. So it's worth dialing into this. In many cases, it's just about being just that little bit smarter and being intentional. You're going to see that as a theme here just throughout this entire episode. So my wife, for instance, she's great at cooking and being smart about not only money, but about time. That's another aspect of FI is clawing back your time to do things that you want instead of just reacting to everything and, oh, I forgot something at the grocery store. I need to run out and grab it or I don't have anything planned. Let's go get takeout. Well, that sounds great in theory, but takeout's expensive and it's going to take you 20 to 30 minutes to get back and forth, even if the place is close. You're losing this time. You're losing this money. Whereas if you just plan ahead, 
it's not really that hard. We cook for leftovers. So Laura, my wife, will cook once or twice a week. But each time she cooks, she'll make it so we each get three dinners out of it. So we call them person meals, which is kind of a silly term. But she'll cook and it'll be six person meals. So each of us will eat three dinners. That's half a week right there. And then you throw in a couple little extra things. She cooks once or twice. That's an entire week. And it helps you be so much more efficient with your purchasing, with your time. And like Jonathan said, you will be floored at how much money you can save. And again, it's not about deprivation. We are cooking what I believe are gourmet meals here. Like I love to eat and I eat pretty significant quantities of food. We eat exceedingly well here. We also like wine. We like craft beers. But instead of going out for an $8 glass of wine or a $6 craft beer, you buy them in the house. Even a six pack of craft beer is only going to be $9, right? So it's $1.50 for a beer as opposed to six plus tax and tip. That's a big difference. So again, it's not about deprivation. It's just about being a little more intentional. And I feel like Brad and I, to some degree on this podcast, are representing the stealth wealth community because to some degree, we're almost trying to fake this entry level middle class lifestyle where we're having all the trappings and appearances of the middle class lifestyle, but we're doing it for a fraction of the cost. And the way you're able to do that is with some of the things that we've talked about and will continue to talk about. The underpinnings of all that is that just that intentional living aspect. I like that a lot about living that high lifestyle, but on a middle class budget intentionally, because I would say people looking at me would say, wow, you don't seem like you're that frugal from the outside. You seem to be spending as much money as the rest of us. But it's like the little things that I'm doing, like in terms of bringing my lunch to work and not having a car payment. So owning my car and not buying clothes, like it's the little things that people don't see. They just see kind of this appearance and they think, oh, well, she must be spending like the rest of us. And it's like, no, I'm a bit more thoughtful and frugal and you can be too. And it doesn't have to look, I don't know what way people think it looks like, but maybe they think again, it's deprivation and it's not happiness and you may look a hot mess and that doesn't have to be the case. Couldn't agree more. Okay. So on to the next, what number are we up to? This is five. Five. Okay. All right. Uh, number five is tax optimization. Now this is where the five community really shines. In this community, you're going to hear information on tax optimization that you don't hear anywhere else. Your financial advisor most likely isn't going to be able to give you this information. And the FI community is known for being very bullish on pre-tax investing. I would say that in the normal personal finance world, you hear a lot about the Roth IRA. But in the FI community, we believe due to the lifestyle that we plan on living and due to the way that we structure our finances, we think there's a play to actually max out all of our tax-deferred vehicles. So that would be your 401k. That would be your 403b. I believe you said your husband has the 457 right. in one of your episodes. Okay. That would be to max out all of your tax-deferred vehicles. Take advantage of the fact that you might find yourself in one of those higher marginal tax brackets, like the 25% marginal tax bracket or higher, and get all that money into investment vehicles working for you pre-tax, growing pre-tax, and then using some of the tools that we have available that we probably would have to save for another episode, but tools that like the Roth conversion ladder, tools like capital gains harvesting, we potentially have the ability to pull that money out tax-free as well. So that's what you call winning. That's when it goes in tax-free, it grows tax-free, and you pull it out tax-free. And that's information that your traditional financial advisors aren't giving you. Right. Yeah. And I see that a lot. I mean, and you're right to make that comparison or that discrepancy is that I do see that in the FI community, it is about tax efficiency. It's about maxing out 
retirement accounts or pre-tax retirement accounts. And in other areas, I definitely see people tending more to the Roth IRA, which there's nothing wrong with that. But for someone like me, even just investing in the Roth IRA is not enough. It's only $5,500 a year. And we have a capacity in our budget to invest way more than that. And we're at the income level where it benefits us to shield our income from as much taxes as possible and worry about how we're going to get it out when we need to access it, which is later. So good point. Okay, so on to the next pillar. Number six, Jamila, is college hacking. Now, this goes back to, if you remember my story, I did it right. If you remember, I said that I did my four years of undergrad, then I did my four years of grad school and, or pharmacy school, and then I came out. But I came out with $168,000 in student loan debt. And while I don't have the statistic here in front of me, I know that the generation that's going through school right now is hurting. We're hurting bad. And they're coming out with forty dollars to $50,000 of debt on average. And in many cases, that is a burden that they will never realistically crawl their way out from unless they hear a message like yours. And what if we could help this next generation? What if we could help our kids come out of college with that same degree, but with no student loan debt? And obviously, we can all think of a single person that has done that successfully, But what if you could capture enough of those ideas and create a game plan around that so that your child could go to college for free, so that your child could get that degree and get that job without the burden of 50 to 60, maybe even $100,000 in student loan debt? That has to be the conversation. That has to be the focus. And so the sixth pillar of FI is college hacking. And it's this idea that as a parent training your kids or raising your kids, As a parent, mentoring your kids through this process, if you can find this information and tee them up, you can lower the bar and help them figure out a way to do college more creatively. Now, this is not a pillar that has the perfect answer yet. We think all the tools are out there and it's going to look slightly different for every family, but it has to be an ongoing conversation in the FI community, especially for the parents. And that's what makes this this conversation multidimensional, I guess what you would call us, us three talking here, we would be first generation Phi. We latched onto the idea. We wanted to achieve it for ourselves. But what does it look like when you start thinking about this for your kids? I guess they would be second generation Phi. And how can you help lower the bar so that they can get that degree without burying themselves in student loan debt? I like that a lot. And in a lot of cases, just to kind of talk tactically here for a second, but there are certainly ways that you can think about how can you save on college. You can go to a community college for two years and then go to a four-year school and get that same four-year degree that everybody else is getting, but they paid for four years worth of the expensive school. In high school, you can take AP courses. You can do dual enrollment with colleges. You can do CLEP tests, all these things to get college credits. We also talk about some FI hacks that there are. Like if the parents are at financial independence, right? So if they've been following this path for a while, their income, quote unquote, will be low, even though they'll have assets potentially, but their income will be low and they might actually qualify for financial aid, right? So there are some things just like a low tax bracket that you would have as a financial independence hack. That's something that from a prior pillar that when you look like you have low income, which you do because you're at financial independence and you're not working anymore, there are these ancillary benefits of being in a low tax bracket, potentially qualifying for financial aid. There are lots of these additional benefits. So yeah, just aside from the conceptual part of college hacking that Jonathan talked about, there are really 
in-depth ways to do this, finding scholarships. I mean, we had one of our guests talk about a full scholarship he got for being a golf caddy. I kid you not, a golf caddy. I heard that episode and I was so surprised. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to find out if there are any <laughs> golf courses around me that do that. Right? It's amazing. You got to get your kids to be golf caddies. But I mean, there are thousands of scholarships like that. It's just being a little bit smarter, just being intentional and finding those $1,000 scholarships that there are literally tens of thousands of these scholarship programs in the country, but getting your children to apply for them instead of just being lazy. All these things you can do if you actually want to come out of college without student loan debt. And again, it's just being intentional. Right, right. So on to the next one. What's the next pillar? All right. Our seventh pillar of FI is actually using travel rewards points. Hopefully you or your audience have heard there's this general term people call it travel hacking. And I don't especially love that because kind of the hacking aspect has negative connotations, but that's the general term. But more kind of broadly, it's using credit card rewards points to travel the world for free or nearly free. So again, this is for people who are just like us, who are on the path or are financially responsible, right? Like that's what we're doing here. We're talking to people who want to reclaim their financial lives. So if you're someone who has issues with credit card debt, not paying on time, not paying in full, don't listen to this pillar. This is not for you. Once you get that set, then you can come back and maybe consider travel rewards. But for the rest of us who do pay on time and in full every single month, well, you're used to getting your 1% rewards. Maybe if you're lucky, it's 1.5%. That's kind of the standard thing. But the banks offer these huge sign-up bonuses when you open a new credit card. And a lot of people try to accumulate numerous of these credit card bonuses to put together basically entire trips for free. So for instance, I took my family of four, I have two young daughters, we went to Disney World, essentially completely free. We spent, I think it was $150 approximately on the combination of Disney World park tickets, flights to Orlando, and five nights in the Disney Swan Hotel, which is this luxury hotel. And that was just because, again, we were intentional. We planned for 18 months, opened up the perfect credit cards we needed to, accumulated these bonuses, and booked the travel. And it really was as simple as that. That saved us well over $4,000. I have a couple extra I have a couple other things I can add on to that too, unless you're ready to hop in, Jamil. No, I wanted to just say that I, I travel hack. I'm not, and you know, I'm not like, Big, big, too big into it, but I've, you know, traveled for free, our honeymoon, my husband, not honeymoon, my anniversary trip. So this year and last year we traveled for free and we've been able to definitely see the benefit. And I want to basically kind of do what you did, Brad, because I want to take my kids to Disney World eventually. And but I, I want to do it for almost free. So that's going to be my next project over the next couple of years. Nice. That sounds like a plan. And we're from New York, actually. So my parents and my in-laws all came down and left from the New York City airport. So I know it's really, really easy to do. And yeah, I'd love to help you, certainly. And what I love about that is the travel rewards aren't confined to going to Disney World. They can literally get you all around the world. And I'm actually taking my family to Cape Town, South Africa here in November. So we're very excited about that. But I think the overarching point that I wanted to stress is why is it okay for us to talk about credit card rewards when this is something that almost has a black eye in the personal finance community. And I think it goes back to what is your framework regarding stuff? And if your goal in life is to constantly get stuff that you can't afford with money that you don't have, credit cards become a way to fill that gap. 
which is a very destructive cycle. But if you're not starting with that from that place of operation and starting instead, you're going to a place where you're focusing on savings rate, where you're focusing on saving 20, 30, 40, 50% of your income. Now you can actually look at credit cards for what they actually are, which is a financial tool that you can use. And in this case, you get to use creativity and you get to travel the world with travel rewards points instead of your hard earned dollars. And it becomes not only just a way to travel the world for nearly free, but just a more creative way of looking at a problem, which then carries over into many other aspects of life. So this is something that we've personally found very rewarding and the FI community in general has latched onto. And in my opinion, really as an early adopter, far beyond what the personal finance community in general is willing to tolerate. Yeah, because I get that too. And I don't talk about it too much. I mean, I mentioned that I travel hack and I'll probably do more in-depth episodes about it. But it's one of those things where you have to be prepared. You can't come into the travel hacking game with credit card debt you can't pay off. So it's not for you if you can't pay off your credit cards. But if, like you said, you're in control of your spending, you're still using a budget and you're being intentional and you can pay off those credit cards every month, there's so much benefit in using credit cards for the bonus reward points. Okay, so let's move on to the next pillar. All right. So the next pillar, we kind of combine two here, which is basically cutting the cord on TV and lowering your cell phone bill as much as possible. So I think they really do tie together because along with a lot of our big line items that we talked about before, the housing, the cars, the food, really cable and cell phones add up to being a significant line item in people's budgets. And it really doesn't have to be. And again, this comes down to what you value. So for instance, my cell phone, I literally spend somewhere between 12 and $15 a month on my cell phone. And that's like a real deal phone. I mean, I have perfect data service. I can get whatever I want on it. But what I don't do is I don't stream YouTube videos. I don't go to Facebook and spend hours watching videos of, you know, cats jumping through hoops because that costs a lot of data. What I've done is I signed up for a program called Republic Wireless. So this phone service called Republic Wireless, and it's basically you pay for what data you use. So by me applying some intentionality to, okay, of course I could afford to spend the hundred dollars per month, but I really don't want to. Because again, like we talked about before, every $100 per month is $30,000 less I need in that pot of money at the end of the day. So I just use my cell phone for what I need it for, Uh, for email, for Googling things, for directions. I don't feel like I'm depriving myself in any way. I'm using it for what I need. I just don't download podcasts or watch videos when I'm not on Wi-Fi, basically, because you get unlimited Wi-Fi, which is cool. So it's just being a little bit smarter And that saves me about $85 a month just for my one phone. Then my wife has another phone. So we're up to $170 a month in savings just between the two phones. I mean, that is really pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's impressive. And Jamila, that's probably conservative. I mean, when you take a look at what the cable, the packages that the cable companies would like you to buy, especially during your sports season, you can spend upwards of $250 a month and still not get every game. I mean, it's just crazy. And then on top of that, when you add in your cell phone bills, I've seen cell phone bills for families that go over $150 a month. Now, keep that in mind. That is $400 a month in expenses that your 
parents in the 1980s, they couldn't even imagine. And now people just accept that as a fact of life. And so when you're thinking, well, the cell phone and the cable, you know, that's kind of small fries. No, it is not small fries. That can turn into mega bucks over decades. Yeah, that's such a good point. We still unfortunately have cable (laughs) and I can't wait to one day get rid of it, but it's going to take more convincing with my husband, but I'm going to get him there. (laughs) And the thing is, you really don't miss it because again, it's not that I'm depriving myself. I mean, we have Netflix, you have thousands of TV shows. You can watch anything you want. I mean, you don't have enough hours in the day to watch everything that you want on Netflix. And you really don't miss the TV once it's gone because also you can get a really inexpensive antenna and it's not like the 1980s rabbit ears. It's an antenna that's pretty low profile. You can get on Amazon for about $20 and it brings the signal in in HD. So you can get, especially up in New York, you can get the local sports teams when they're on NBC, CBS, ABC. It just comes in for free over the air in HD. Again, you're not giving anything up really other than at the margins. You might miss ESPN, but you get used to not watching SportsCenter for eight minutes in the morning, right? When it's talking about saving $200 a month. Right. So it's just being intentional about those choices and really realizing what matters in life. Mm. And this is a longer conversation, more just about subscriptions and whether or not they add value. And this is just kind of a cool challenge. What if you just went through, you track where all your money is going from a subscription basis and you just started chopping things out left and right. And then you just agree to just get rid of it for a month. And at the end of the month, you go back and you say, am I a sadder person? Am I less happy as a result of not having it? Conversely, if you can say, wow, I didn't miss this, just move on with your day and count your blessings. Mm, Yeah, I like that. I like that evaluation. Okay, so on to the next one. All right, now this is one that we actually added under protest. A lot of the process you'll find, and we found this is this iterative process where you kind of make these pronouncements of what these pillars are, and then your community, which is the most valuable aspect of any two-way communication street, kind of weighed in, and they said, wait, we think you missed something. And this is this idea of the side hustle or multiple income streams. The fact of the matter is a lot of us have it ingrained in us that our nine to five is our most secure way to earn income. And I tend to disagree with that. I think it's incredibly important to get out there and challenge yourself and maybe consider a side hustle. I think even if your side hustle or business only makes a few hundred dollars a year, there's a real value to just being willing to try something new and create the option to bring in income from a different stream. And so Jamil, I know that to some degree, that's what you're doing with this podcast. You're kind of stretching yourself. You're putting yourself in a different situation. I know you have a few other business ventures that you've jumped into. And it's one of those things that Of course, it's uncomfortable at first. Of course, it's not something that you're automatically good at right away. But that process of slowly getting better at something is so valuable, far beyond whatever income you may earn from it. So it's this idea of earning multiple income streams over time. And that is our ninth pillar of FI. Yeah. And I think that's such a great pillar to have added because it's almost like the concept of investing. You're investing in yourself. So hopefully it's a low cost side hustle or a side hustle that you're not funding with debt. And you might have to put in a lot of sweat equity and time and it might take a little while to see some income. Or maybe you do something really quickly like babysitting or something that you can really see some immediate returns on. But I really like the idea of it's almost like you're investing in yourself and whatever skill you want to develop so that it can hopefully supplement your income and help you reach FI not only sooner, but give you something to do once you reach FI. So once you do reach financial independence, this is what you can 
do full time if it's your passion. Yes, that's so insightful. And it's where I landed as well. So once you decide that you no longer want to collect stuff, you can start focusing on collecting skills, right? Yeah, I like that. All right. And then pillar number 10, and this is kind of the end cap for all this, and it kind of takes us back to the beginning. But pillar number 10 is the savings rate and the 4% rule. And this is the savings rate and the 4% rule. And if you remember, we started with the fact that financial independence is defined by having 25 times your annual expenses saved up. The 4% rule is basically another way of framing that. So once you have gone through this process, this intentional process of finding out how much your life actually costs, getting rid of anything that appears wasteful, kind of figuring out what is that bare minimum level of expenses that I need, and then adding back only the things that add value to your life. Now you've landed on a reasonable number. And wherever you were hemorrhaging wasteful dollars before, now every line item in your budget represents value. And then that you can then project that out and determine what number you need to hit to reach financial independence. Once you hit that number, you can then withdraw 4% per year for the rest of time, and instead of you being a consumer of the economy, which most of us are in this phase of life, you become an owner of the economy. And that's the long-term play. And the really cool thing is, once you get that savings rate up past maybe what you're thinking is the right thing to do now, a lot of people just settle with whatever the match is at their employer. Once you can get that savings rate up past 5 or 6%, you can start getting it into the 20%, 30%, maybe even up past 50%. I know people in my community that have been able to get their savings rate up near 85%, and then they're like, oh, well, maybe that's a little bit too hardcore. Maybe I should move it back down to 70 right? And <laughs> it's all relative. So once you can get that savings rate approaching 50%, this timeline to reach financial independence becomes incredibly truncated. And instead of you having a 40-year timeline to reach financial independence, quote-unquote, in early retirement, now maybe you're on a 5, 10, or 15-year path. And just the fact that you can shorten it so much is motivating in and of itself. And the fact that by focusing on value as a way to determine how much do I need to be setting aside, you find that you're happy along the way. And it goes back to Brad's message that this is not about deprivation, but it is about intentional living. And it is about living the life that you want to live and designing a future that you can get excited about living into. Mm. And I think that's such a powerful pillar to end it on because we really just brought it full circle I think you guys really mapped out not only what FI means, but really how can someone get there. And I hope that if you're listening to this, you've taken notes <laughs> and you will start to implement some of these things in your life so you can make these changes and you can reach that FI number sooner rather than later. So I just want to thank you, Brad and Jonathan, once again for coming on and sharing all your wisdom. Please let everyone know where they can find you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us, Jamila. This has been a lot of fun. So our podcast is called Choose FI and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, your Android app. We're available on all those different platforms. We do have a website at choosefi.com and we also have a Facebook community that is growing very rapidly. And if you want to join that, we would love to see you there. We'd love to answer your questions, continue this conversation. You can just go to choosefi.com slash Facebook. And uh, yeah, we'd love to see you there. So I really hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Jonathan and Brad. We really dived into some really good, good topics, the foundation blocks for FI. So think about it. I want you to go to my show notes page, journeytolaunch.com slash episode 19 and look at the pillars. What 
can you do? What can you start to implement so that you can further yourself along on this journey to financial freedom? And commit, commit to doing something today. Commit to changing one thing that will get you closer to your goal. Also, if you have not left a review for me in iTunes and you listen in iTunes, please go ahead and do it. What are you waiting for? Come on, we're friends, right? You can do it. And as you know, it really just helps the podcast. And listen, if you're not even listening in iTunes, that's totally fine. I'm just glad you're listening. And don't forget, the most important thing you can do to help get the message of financial freedom to everyone is to share. If you like this episode, share it with your friends, share it with your family, put it on your social media, tag me, comment, let me know that you're liking it or what I can improve upon. You know, I always love hearing your feedback. Also, come and join us over in the private Journey to Launch Facebook group. It's a small growing group, but it's amazing. I mean, the connections and the conversations that we have in there are pretty awesome. And people open up a bit more. I open up a bit more in there. So if you want to come join us, go to journeytolaunch.com slash community. Okay, guys, I will chat with you next week. 